Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time for Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, and they are here ready to take your questions. You can send them over at any time, 877-933-2484. The power panel is impressive today, as always. Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Peter Kapsner, and 007 comes when he pleases. We don't know if he's going to come, when he'll show up. I mean, uh, Peter, yeah. let's talk about some of the cryptic text messages yeah, even we've the received text back from in the last 20 minutes. It's, it's, it is what you would expect out of double. So he, he cannot make a commitment anywhere because that would put him at risk. And, totally. And so he says things like, well, I'm planning to call at this time, and I'm going to try to do that, yes. but I don't really and know no for sure. There is no commitment anywhere in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, none. Yeah. But uh, gentlemen, welcome. Nice to have you all here, and thank you for uh, participating once again in another uh, episode of Guy Talk. Always good to be here, Bill. Thank it you. Is. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Tom, Tom, and Peter. So here's a question. Uh, what does it mean to walk blamelessly before the Lord? Can we walk blamelessly before God? Great question. It is a good question, mm-hmm. and it's something that I think at first is confusing, because we all know that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not what we do. It's what Jesus has done. But this language is put on us in the Bible, and I think the language is to draw us closer to walking with the Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, you'd walk closer with Yahweh. In the New Testament, we know who Yahweh is in terms of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You walk closer with Jesus. And so, for me, blamelessness is not that I don't mess up, not that I don't sin. It's just I repent pretty quickly. Mm. And the goal is to be like Jesus. So I think blamelessness is not how much I do. It's in who I'm putting all my confidence in. Yeah, I pulled a Tom Parrish over here and started looking it up in the Hebrew <laughs> while you were talking Tom Parrish. So it was... And uh, there does seem to be some interesting nuances to the word. Uh, words like uh, honest and simple and naive seem to be part of what's considered the blameless light, uh, life. And maybe it even ties into, because this is the description of Abraham, when God says right. to Abraham, walk blameless in front of me. Uh, that ties into even the phrase from Genesis 2, naked and unashamed, where being naked and unashamed means that you're fully open and vulnerable to the power of God and that that there's no guile in you. You are just simply who you are. There's an honesty and a, 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 a trustworthiness, all of that related to your relationship with God. So I'm not sure that the word blameless relates to the fact that you don't sin. I think it seems to be that you are fully open and honest about all that's going on in your life. Good word. And I think, I think of the Apostle Paul on, on one page of Scripture saying, I was blameless under the law, although he does, I think, qualify that in, in Romans 7, saying, well, I, the law produced in me coveting of every kind. So he knew he was also sinful in the law, but generally, you know, he followed the law. But he also says, uh, I am the chief of sinners. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Uh, praise be to Jesus Christ. So I think, again, I'll bring it up, I, uh, something that is helpful for me and Hopefully the listeners, again, this is the only Latin I know, simul justus et peccator, which is the Reformation phrase, simultaneously saint and sinner. And when we get saved from that day on, we're always two things. 
We're always a sinner, and we're always a saint. And those two things battle in me, and generally, by the grace of God, uh, the blameless wins, but sometimes the wretched man wins, and uh, uh, ultimately, hallelujah, therefore, our salvation is by grace alone. Yeah, I was just reading a little bit more about this word blameless, too, because there's a few characters in the Old Testament that are described in this way, not just Abraham being invited to that kind of walk, but Noah and Job and David were seen as blameless, quote-unquote, men. And, and it's talking about, of course, they all sinned. We all know the kinds of actions and activities that these men engaged in. And yet it talks about uh, having an unblemished heart filled with love and sincerity, that there really is just an open and honest transparency. You're not living in the deceit of yourself or the deceit in front of God. You, you simply are who you are. And as they did sin, these men did repent and they came back. And so I, I think there's, as long as we're not equating blamelessness with sinlessness, I think right. it's in the midst of the sin that we do that we're willing to be open and honest with God about it. In the New Testament, Jesus tells the story about the two sons. The father says to the son, go work in the field. And he goes, yes, I will, Dad, but doesn't go. Yeah. The other one says, no, I won't, but then changes his mind and go works in the field. Jesus said, which one did the father's will? Mm. And, and I think that's another way of looking at blamelessness. It's not that we don't sin. It's not that we don't make mistakes. It's just as soon as we realize it or come at a conviction, we say, I was wrong. I should have done that, and I will now go do it. Mm-hmm. Well done, gentlemen. I can't. Oh, go I ahead, can't top that. I can't top that. <laughs> but you've already spoken Latin today, so I think you've not. I think you're clear, the clear winner. Aren't, aren't, at this you point. aren't you impressed? Aren't you impressed? I am. Can we say? I'm can impressed. we say this too? Yeah. When Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door and, and they'll say sometimes, "Well, you know, the Greek really says," and even when Christians do it, you know, I I, I can read Greek. I can't read Hebrew, but I can kind of read Greek with help. If you've got a good solid Bible translation, you know as much as anybody else. Don't let people uh, fool you with the fact that they know a little Greek. (laughs) So there you go. All right. This next question sort of uh, piggybacks to the first topic, and that is the word abide. In John 15, 7, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So maybe uh, the listener is asking, I've never heard a really good explanation for the word abide. That's kind of a part two to that first question. It's interesting. We had a staff meeting the other day, and we were talking about abiding, what that word really means. And it's used a lot in the New Testament. And I love my staff uh, that I work with at church. They, you know, well, you got to be obedient. you got to walk in faith. you got to do all this and that. And, and I'm pretty much agreeing with them and thinking about it. And then it finally dawned on me. An, an image came to my mind that I actually pulled it up on the internet, and I said, I think this is what it means. And I turned it around, and it's a mother holding a baby. The baby is abiding. The baby's not fighting the mother. The baby's not trying to get away from the mother. The baby's not trying to be the boss. The baby is simply resting in the arms of the mother and saying, this is all I need. And think about us for a minute. How often are we, do we need to do that with Jesus? But we don't. We don't just rest in his arms and say, whatever you want to do, Lord, it's up to you. So I think that abiding is not how what we do. It's how we're, we're willing to give ourselves over to let Jesus do what he wants to do in us. And so when I try to abide in the Lord, I try to clear my mind, open myself up and say, whatever you want, Lord, I'm willing to do. Yeah, there seems to be a sense in this word that it means to not depart from. Exactly what you're right. saying, Tom Parrish, that, that you will stay with and that you will... Remain and and I've been captured more recently about some of Jesus's words where he says, "I haven't called you to be sheep. I haven't called you to be servants because they don't know what their master is up to. I've called you to be friends." Yep. And uh, in in that time of friendship, that means you're just staying with 
Jesus, you're not going to depart from that version of doing life moving forward. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're walking in, you are going to remain with Jesus in, in the midst of those things you're not going to depart from. Now, that second half of the verse is always puzzling to me, and so I would, I would hesitate to speak on any of that about what it means to ask whatever you would wish and be granted. I, I would say, <clears throat> Brock, even in light of what I, I agree with, that a good translation can be terribly helpful that I think in these specific instances, when we see something like ask whatever you wish and it'll be granted to you, if we just stay within the English on that, uh, that, that could become really tricky really fast. So I'd, I would want to get into more of what the original meaning was underneath that, because otherwise we're like, hey, man, I just asked for chocolate cake and it didn't come. Yep. I, I'm, and agreed. I mean, I think there's a I don't like it that some of our seminaries now don't teach Greek and Hebrew right. anymore. That's that stinks. But it also stinks when somebody uses their degree as a way to shut people up. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. Hey, uh, you know. So anyway, yeah, not I, that anybody on our panel would ever think of doing such a thing. But I think Brock, you're bringing up a really important point. Some of my students actually were talking about that very thing this morning, and they said that um, they they feel very often shut down by the fancy people with fancy letters that are holding offices of power, uh, mm-hmm. and, and there's not. Uh, authentic mutual dialogue going back and forth. It doesn't mean somebody doesn't have some credibility as a shepherd to help along the way, but I think oftentimes, to your point, uh, we run into people, and this, but this is true of Jesus's day, right? I mean, he he says to the Pharisees of that day, "You, you Pharisees of the law, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to make a convert of yourself, and you make him twice as much of a son of hell as you are." And and, and when Jesus is saying those things, he's basically saying, "You're all about your own religious power, shutting everybody else out, and trying to gain the upper hand." And and mm-hmm. yes, I, to your point. Yeah. That is a, a way in which the original languages are being wielded by maybe too many people. And, you know, isn't there a verse where Jesus says, if you abide in my word? Uh, isn't there a verse like that? And the the point I'm going to make here is there are people who think they're abiding in Jesus, and they've got their own Jesus they've dreamed up, who, you know, mm-hmm. God is love, and that's about as deep as it gets. And they... They hold all kinds of viewpoints that are unbiblical, but they say they're Christians because I believe God is love. And But Jesus said, if you abide in my word, I think he says, mm-hmm. then you will be my disciples. Mm-hmm. And and abiding in the word is what makes you a disciple, not abiding in your opinions of Jesus. or what mm-hmm. You know, when somebody says, well, well, my loving Jesus would never send anyone to hell. Okay, what about the verse where Jesus says, depart from me, you evildoers, to the eternal fire prepared for them? I mean, you can't dream up your own Jesus. If you abide in my word, you're a disciple, not abiding in your own opinions of what Jesus has to be. My name is Bond, James Bond. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. Yeah, well, oh, we feel so much way, better now. Right? Protected. I mean, yeah. Did it again, Bill. He does as he pleases. Yeah. yeah you guys show up on time. We do. And, and, I don't ask for this. I just want our listeners to know I do not ask. For that. No in that I have my own walk-up music. As much as, as much as Peter will try to get you to, you know, convince you otherwise. I. If you wanted just, this, I wouldn't do it. So just so you know. <laughs> Oh, my. All right. Just good point. Welcome to the panel, uh, Justin Jepson. Yeah. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we want uh, your questions, 877-933-2484. Got a bunch of great questions already coming in. We'll address them when we return. You are listening to Guide Talk. Power panel is Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Paris, Justin Jepson, Peter Kapsner. We'll be right back. Thank <laughs> you. 
Let me run some preview questions by you guys. Uh, Yeah, welcome back to Guide Talk or Guys Who Talk. Power Panel is here to take your questions. There's some great ones coming in. Here's a one to get started. Just came in. Was Jesus Jewish? If so, wouldn't he have had to believe in the total of the Talmud? I think the answer is yes to both. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have to explore that one too much more. Well, when you say Talmud, let's say the Torah. The Torah. Yeah. Yep. Here's a question all the way from Ontario, Canada. Uh, Let's see. um, Genesis 127 says, So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. My question is, if Eve was not created until chapter 2, who are the women mentioned in chapter 127? Peter, you just taught on this today, didn't you? I did, I did, yeah. Okay. Just, I think, in a, in a real quick nutshell, okay. um, we have to understand that Chapter 2 is just another part or version of the, of the telling of the creation story. It's being told this time in narrative form, whereas Genesis 1 is being told in more of a poetic account. Now, okay. I want to be careful when I say that because it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It, they're just telling the story of what happened through the lens of poetry, and, and, and Hebrew poetry is characterized by repetition and rhythm, and there's just a sound to it. And so when we get to Genesis 2... We're getting some of the details of some of those initial days of creation. And so this, this is not a different creation. We're just getting the details of what happened on that day six of creation in which male and female was created. Yeah, it's kind of like when my family says, oh, Tom's shown up. He's come to visit us. Oh, in chapter two, Jan's here with him, too. I yeah. mean, we're both together. We were both came together. But one part only talks about one part. The other part then expands on it. And I think in fairness, and now this is, wouldn't be the right context for that, but there is so much help in Genesis 1 and 2 for understanding male and female and, and even bringing a reorient, reorienting and reordering to, to all of the sort of the sexual confusion of our day. There's just a ton in there that's what, that you'd be able to mine out for sure. Tom or Justin, anything to add? Well, the only other thing I've been in dialogue a little bit with some people that insist that there's a lot of genders. And my response is Jesus in Matthew 18 says, according to what Peter just said about Genesis, have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female, period. He doesn't add or transgender or non-binary or, you know. And so Jesus was very binary. We are made male and female, period. That comes from Genesis. It's throughout the scriptures. And it's only within the last few decades that some within the church have become more enlightened than Jesus Christ and have discovered that there's over 100 genders. So there you go. Yeah, I think, Tom, just quickly on that, too. I I remember the first time I was taken aback, maybe five years ago, I had to do a, a conference at a local university and the, the foil of the conference was a sociologist from the University of Minnesota. And I didn't know what her presentation was going to be. Uh, but before I went to talk about the binary of male and female, as established in Scripture, uh, she laid out this entire diagram that was called uh, the genderbred man. And, and it was, it, th- this is when it started getting to be into popular culture and notions that there's a variety of genders and continuums and, and ways in which people understand themselves. And boy, 
it is a really big and complex and tricky conversation, but it's something, again, my students just said today, they said after 14 weeks in a sexuality class, they said, oh my word, do we have to start getting this teaching in the church because we just don't know how to talk about it. Well, and I think yeah. sometimes we've been taught to be so polite as Christians and so easygoing that we really don't lovingly get in other people's face. Right. I've lived long enough that I finally realized you got to do this sometimes. Similar to Tom, I had a, a person say to me, now this was a person who came to my church who said to me the same thing you did, Tom, about, you know, uh, gender. And when I reminded them about male and female, what Jesus said, you know, he didn't have much to say. He goes, well, that was back then. This is now. My response, and I'm not advertising this or promoting it. I looked at him and I said, why are you spitting in Jesus's face? He said, what, what do you mean? I said, you're saying Jesus was wrong. Is that really what you're saying? That he really didn't know what he was talking about, but you're still claiming him as savior and he's going to save you when you die? Well, no, mm-hmm. I didn't mean that. I, I wouldn't say. So we often let people get away with this language without any way to challenge them to think beyond it. And sometimes and, it depends on the person. You have to be firm and others you have to be, you know, real subtle about it. And on uh, on the news today was the story of a uh, college male for the first two years of college. And now he's a female. And now he's winning uh, like four swim meets yes. as a woman. And they interviewed one uh, woman on the team who said, yeah, we pretend to say, oh, it's so wonderful what you're doing, but it's all fake. We feel this is not right. And, you know, so if you're going to, I mean, the, the culture has gone crazy. And again, when the churches, the, the liberal mainline churches have a transgender bishop now, et cetera, it's just. Like, what on earth is God allowing in the United States and all over the world? Europe's is bad. Canada's worse. And it's well, these are strange times to try to hold forth the truth of Scripture, but we have to do it. Yeah, the swimmer uh, who is male, who identifies as a woman, won by 38 seconds oh, wow. in the competition. Wow. wow. That's not yeah. even close. <laughs> it's not close. No. Yeah. It's just wow. crazy. I mean, and so and so— when you've got school boards insisting that boys can use the girls' showers at age 15, I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe just one more quick comment on that. I think another thing that we were, again, talking about today, I'm sorry to keep referencing the class, but, but it, was, it was quite a class with them. It was our last class of the semester, and they went around over the course of an hour and 40 minutes and said, so what was, what's one takeaway from the semester? And it was really just kind of this breathtaking stuff as they were getting into it. But one of the things that really emerged as a theme was that it's not that we haven't had teachers of sex in our culture. We have plenty of teachers about sex in our <laughs> culture. They're just rubbish teachers at the end of the day. And, and I think while we can understandably object to these kinds of teachings that are happening in the gender-fluid context, uh, on the flip side of it, the church is, is, is somewhat culpable in all of this because the church has not taught faithfully and helpfully, nor has it manifested a healthy sexuality for a number of generations right now. And so my young people coming in, they have been taught mightily about sex. It's just that all of their teachers are rubbish teachers and they don't have the contrasting voice. So we can rail against the liberal churches and what's going on in these gender fluid movements and people walking in gay relationships. But I'm not entirely sure what we should expect otherwise, given the fact that we have not been faithful models or faithful teachers during this season. And so this is what they're looking for help. And just like all of us, they're looking for, for hope and wholeness and relationships and, and, and just want to be seen and loved and known. And th- these are the options that they currently have. So I think we have to be as mindful of what we haven't taught as what is being taught. Justin? Yeah, I don't know if I have a whole lot to, okay. to add. I mean, I, but I, I think the one point that, 
you know, something just as on a personal note that I've been processing, um, you know, just as raising young kids into the into this mess, right, of, of what we're just talking about into the various complexity. Um, a couple, it's about a month ago, there was a team of us um, from our student life team here at Northwestern. We went to a, an, an all-day training with um, a guy by the name of Dr. Preston Sprinkle, um, president of Center of Faith and Sexuality. Uh, gender, faith, and sexuality. And one of the things that he said just really caught my attention, you know, and talking about addressing these um, these questions, you know, on kids and how do you bring kids up? How do you disciple kids into this? And, and he said, um, you know, if you don't if you don't address your kids' questions, the questions don't go away. They just go away with their questions. Mm-hmm. And, and they're going to be going to someplace with those questions. And so I think that the, the from the large part of my experience, the church has, has very much been more reactionary to what's happening in the culture and trying to figure out a way to respond and um, really hasn't had a proactive approach mm-hmm. um, in this when really, I mean, to back to Peter's point, we, we have the script in Genesis 1 and 2. There's so much that can be mined out of there that to really include that in the way that we are discipling um, our kids in this next generation in terms of their understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God um, and the binary view of that of male and female and how that works together in the context of marriage um, is just so crucial and so complex, but yet it, it really can't be done in a solitary way or in the isolation. It has to be um, ha- has to be something that happens within the context of the Christian community. So I'm um, grateful that we can have this conversation here, but it's it's really, we have to be really, really proactive when I think the, the church, a large part, has been really reactive to this. I want, I'm trying to catch up. I, I want to just celebrate, too, we've just finished winter, our fundraiser this week, and it was spectacular. And when we were finishing up our formal fundraising at about one o'clock yesterday afternoon, we were about $17,000 short of where we were last year. And you always want to try to meet last year's goals, preferably exceed them, the whole thing. We just laid it out there and we said, you know, Lord, this is your ministry and the generous giving of Faith Radio listeners never seems to end. And we're trusting you. And by six o'clock, all the numbers were there. Praise God. That is amazing. That's incredibly remarkable. And it's awesome. like, well, I'll get the work done after you stop fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing how that happens. Yeah, it's crazy. Mm. You know, it's interesting because there's a phenomenon going on that's not being talked about. Evangelical pastors who are Bible-based are having people come to them who either come from a Christian background or not, and they will say to the pastor, I've been transgendered. I realize now it's a mistake. I've wrecked my life. I don't want to go through more surgery. I'm not sure that's going to solve anything. But I discovered I was wrong, and basically I was deceived. What can I do now, and will Jesus forgive me? And that is happening to pastors, and we're not talking about it publicly, but we need to. Mm-hmm. We'll take a little break. We're open to your questions, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Listen to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. We'll be right back. Talk, or guys who talk. And Peter, your son, uh, Samuel, is a 
incredible pianist. Yeah, he? he's really been given a gift for it. I, th- I think I can objectively say that even yeah. I'm a very biased parent, of course. Yeah. yeah, And you actually have a piano in your house, don't we you? Do. We yeah. do, indeed. That's good. So uh, would you give a nice little shout-out to Amelia? She's nine, on her way to her first uh, piano recital at the local Christian Academy. I love that. Oh, Amelia, we are so with you on that first piano recital. <laughs> I just feel the nerves yep. myself a little bit, but boy, we sure love to see the video of Amelia's performance. If their parents would be willing to send it in, it'd be just, just lovely. Yeah. Great. Be yeah. great. Let me pray for Amelia right now. Great. Lord, stretch out your hand on Amelia. Let her know that she's not going to be up there with that piano alone. You're going to be with her. And Lord, you've given her the gifts. Now use them to your glory, and may she delight everyone who listens. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. 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 All right, here's a question. Every situation is different, but what are some of the best ways you've mentored younger Christians, high school or others who may be newer to faith? How do you support those who aren't connected to a good local church? Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I think I, so much. Yeah, go, go ahead, Tom. No, uh, no you go well, ahead. I was, <laughs> <laughs> you do okay, I'll go ahead. Here. Uh, just, yeah, real, real, real <laughs> briefly, I think if they're not connected to, uh, you know, a local church, again, that that's, that is that is so definitely crucial. But I think, you know, you are a part of the church and who you are as a follower of Jesus and a member of his body. And so I think so much of the discipleship, um you know, again, our approach can so so easily become over-cognitively based. Here's what you need to know. Um, And we forget that the, you know, uh, Dallas really called this the great omission to the great commission. It's not teaching them everything that Jesus commanded, but teaching them to observe and to obey. So um, I think one of the best ways to do it is, is, is what does that look like in your life? What does, uh, you know, a, a normal the follower of Jesus do, and even going about their day and involving them in the mundane things. They've even take them grocery shopping with you, take them run on errands, involve them in your family, um, and, and let them see, you know, really firsthand um, what following Jesus looks like in the day-to-day. And I think mm-hmm. that can become really effective along the way, and, and like Jesus did while you're in the car. It's as you go, make disciples. And so I think it's good to have a have a curriculum or have a specific intentional plan that you're walking through a book of the Bible, going through one of the gospels is excellent, but then bring them with you and share, really share life with them. And you know, what I, what's touching to me is, you know, being a pastor many years with lots of confirmation students and lots of high school students. Now and then here's somebody who's 15 coming to church whose family doesn't want them to come to church they're coming because they're a friend of a of somebody in the confirmation class. They love the Lord, and it's kind of like, where did this come from? I mean, it, sometimes there's a person that, I mean, I can think of a woman whose her her dad is against the Lord, but when she was 16, she starts coming to church, and now she works at the church. I think of another guy whose parents could have cared, but here he was. Here he is a pastor now. It's just kind of neat to see God do His thing. You know, very often we're raised in the church, and that's wonderful, but it's just neat to see God pick somebody out of nowhere and save them. And I I agree with what Justin just said. Now we need to get them connected to Christian fellowship, because that will help them stay a Christian, even if mom and dad hate the fact that they're a Christian. But fellowship is key. Well, and that fellowship is giving them a task to do together. You know, oftentimes you try to entertain the youth in the church, and that's not enough. Because uh, you can still be isolated in entertainment. I've worked with some gang members over the years, and they have told me, I said, why did you join the gang? Because I had other people that would be there for me. 
I knew I could trust them, and we did these things together. Well, we need the same thing in Christianity. And these young people, they don't need just a lot of academics about Christianity. They need living demonstrations. So what we would do with some of our youth is we put them in groups of three, and we'd send them to a nursing home to go sing during Christmas. We'd send them off to uh, some other places to help people uh, or go mow people's lawn as a group. And that bound those people together. And now they're adults, and many of them are still together. Yeah, I think what you guys are saying... Um uh, it, it's just so compelling, and and you're talking about. I, I'm I love the idea, intrigued by the idea that discipleship is is sort of akin to the idea of becoming an apprentice in something. Mm-hmm. And and if you're going to become an apprentice in something, let's say you want to, be, you know, I was if you were a blacksmith parish, and I wanted to become your apprentice, I wouldn't just show up on on a Wednesday night for an hour and say, you know, teach me how, how to melt some steel. I don't even know what goes into being a blacksmith, but melt some clearly. steel. Yeah, clearly, <laughs> I'm way over my skis on the blacksmith <laughs> analogy. So we're just going to dial that one back. But but I think what's what, what's interesting. Um, I don't know that we're all at all prepared for the coming disruption in the way in which church life has been practiced for a few generations. And what I mean by that is that young people, as I talk to them, the common pattern is that they are desperately disinterested in the way organized ministry has presented yes. itself over this last couple of generations. And so some of these big mega church movements and some of these big, well, you come to us, we're the destination, we program you, all of those sorts of things. I'm, I would not be a bit surprised if in five to seven years that whole thing is done. And, and I think what I'm, what I'm experiencing among young people is that they want to be in proximity. They want to have lived experience, as you th- said, I think, Justin, where it's not just you're going to get together for an hour a week and read some scriptures together. Go along to the grocery store, mow the lawn together, hang out together, cook dinner together, um, sit back around a fire and chat about stuff. Like this is lived life together that they're looking for in, in terms of this discipleship stuff. So the idea that we can mentor on a once a month kind of basis, it, there I know I can say with great clarity that that's not what they're looking for. And they're not at all interested in coming to the programs anymore. There's a, I mean, of course, some are coming, but the vast majority of the stats are showing it. And the anecdotes in my classroom are revealing that as well. There's a big disruption coming, and I hope we're ready for it. Speaking of blacksmith, if you're a horse, do you pretty much buy the first <laughs> pair of shoes you put on? <laughs> I told you, I'm over my skis. I, I can't comment any further on that one. <laughs> any shoes that get nailed on, I'm keeping. Yeah. 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 Right. Justin, anything to add? Well, I, I started with that. I mean, yeah, I mean, to circle back around. Yeah, just I, if I mean, there's anything I, else, I want to give you the last yeah. word. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. No, I, I think just the 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 whole aspect of just this has to be incarnational, mm-hmm. and I think there and it needs to be re, reimagined, you know. And yep. and then so I think the this idea of, of about following Jesus is simply just knowing things about Him, um, you know. Is is again, there's a whole generation that is maybe tasted of that approach, and and, and they're and they're the left found wanting, thinking that they've tried Jesus and mm-hmm. it hasn't worked, when rather than actually having a living encounter with Jesus that can happen through his life being incarnated through his followers. And so mm-hmm. I think that's what, you know, really it's, it's dependent on the Holy Spirit. And I love the way that, you know, the listener phrased the question on the front end is every situation is different. And that is so true. Yeah, not right. not there aren't common principles that can be applied across the board, but really um, trust that the Holy Spirit is putting people within your realm and sphere of influence um, to, to disciple, to mentor, um, and I love the way I love the way the Apostle Paul says, says it. He goes, you know, that to the Thessalonians, he says that we weren't just content to share the gospel with you, but you, but our very lives as well, because you had become very dear to us. So I just, I mean, I think that that aspect it's been so sweet when you can taste that type of fellowship and relationship with others. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Justin. 
Uh, Tom Parrish, I'm going to kind of direct this question your your way, if you don't mind, um, because I'm, the question involves how you support um, a healthy lifestyle in your marriage. Um, I, know, I know recently you've talked about your weight loss. And yep. how many pounds did you shave off? I've lost 55. 55. So wow. Congratulations. So Thank you. How did it go with you and Jan uh, talking about, Jihan, we should try to improve our health and try to make our lifestyle more healthy? You know what's interesting is that we did it together. We, we began talking about this and about our own health issues, and we're getting older. What are we going to do about that? And we said, you know, our son tried this intermittent fasting why don't we try it together? Well, it doesn't work as well for women as it does men. But I did. And I lost that weight. And she lost, I think, 16 or 18 pounds in the process. The point is, the way to make it work is you got to have a partner. You've got to work together. And we decided to work together. And, you know, I think about the scripture saying that when you marry, you become one flesh. I've learned over all these years of marriage, if we don't do it together, the devil is very content to keep us apart. Mm. And so we just found ways to do that. We do that with everything, whether it is uh, dieting, whether it is traveling, whether it is speaking. Jan goes to almost everything I, I do and speak at, and she adds, because I work with her behind the scenes. She's the old principal, so she gives me a lot of good insights. So mm-hmm. we're a team in this, and I wish more people to be a team. Yeah, well, I directed that question at you if anybody else has a contribution to make, just ways of encouraging one another in a healthier lifestyle, especially, you know, if you have concerns about how um, a lifestyle might cause problems down the road. You guys sound like you have a trusting relationship where you can go to those places. And I think just we, we can't assume that just because people are married that they're living in kind of the trusting and safe relationship where you can have right. these very vulnerable conversations. So I'm assuming for you guys to even have those conversations to begin with, you had to have some sort of foundation of trust and openness with one another. Well, we did. The first 10 years of our marriage were, was a disaster. I'll just be honest. Sure. I mean, we should have separated and gone separate ways. A lot of issues. Along the way there, it was like Jesus slapped us up both sides of the head and you know, both sides of our heads and says, get your act together and get it together for me. And we both began at the same time trying to be more in the scriptures, talking and forgiving. Jan's the introvert. She had to learn how to open up and talk about her feelings. I'm the extrovert. I had to learn to shut up and listen. And so as we did that, things began to change. And that's how we've grown over these last 35 years Mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. You're welcome to be an an introvert in this show. Just so you know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let me... uh, let me move on here. Uh, here's an interesting question. Any wisdom about getting married in a church versus getting married in a venue? Any help would be appreciated. I've married uh, a number of people in, in, I suppose, venues in the last uh, three to four months. And and I think, I don't know, we talk about this all the time, you guys, don't we, right? That, that when we think about church, we have to think about it in its original context. It's just simply the people of God who have said yes to following Jesus, inhabited by the Spirit, to shine his resurrection light into the world. And in bearing witness, now how and where they gather is an entirely different question than how I just described what the church would be. And so when we think of church, if we think it's a building with a sign and a steeple and a website and a staff and something we do on a Sunday morning, that's not actually the biblical definition of church. All the, That's just a place where the church can gather, and the church can gather at a beautiful venue outside of church as well. The point is, 
um, that I, and I have absolutely experienced the, the sacredness of the vows between two lovely, beautiful Jesus-following people in the midst of an incredibly stunning setting, like a garden or a farm or something along those lines. It didn't take away from, from what was going on, their sacred vows in front of God, just because it didn't happen in a building that we've misunderstood that as the church. It's just simply the place where the church gathers. Ditto. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Amen there. I, and I would, I would just say to the pastors <clears throat> listening to the show, um, weddings and funerals are two of the very best times to preach salvation because you've got lots of people listening to you that never go to church except for a wedding or a funeral. So don't, I mean, of course, talk about marriage and, and God's uh, design for marriage, but make sure you get in there that there's only one way this marriage is going to truly bring glory to God, and that's through um, Christ and his death on the cross for our salvation. Do you know if you're saved? I mean, go right into it. And and uh, I don't really care if I'm at a, doing a wedding in a barn or in a church. Uh, I guess I'd rather do it in a church. But uh, barns, I'll do it in a barn. But it's the message that's so important. And it can be tragic. You go, I love to go to a funeral. And the preacher is up there talking about heaven and hell, and there's only one way to be saved. I hate going to a funeral when it's all about how nice Joe is, and we know he's in heaven because he was so nice. You know, so just make sure you use the wedding sermon uh, for salvation. All right, we'll take a short break, and when we come back, we still have time for your question. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Again, eight seven seven nine three three twenty four. 84. Listen to Guy Talk. The power panel is Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Peter Kapsner, and Justin Jepson. Be right back. talk or guys who talk we've got uh, some great questions coming in thank you for always participating and asking such great questions 877-933-2484 my wingman terry says can the power panel recommend a few good bible study resources it seems every major ministry has their own publications would they have some of their own favorites it's a great question there are some great resources out there i know i use accordance bible study and there's logos out there. There are many of them like that. For the computer, it's wonderful because you can look up Greek, Hebrew. You can do all of that very quickly. The other thing I really rely on is an old document, um, still around. You can still get it uh, by R.C.H. Lenski on the translation of the New Testament Greek. And although he goes into a lot of Greek, he really gives a lot of understanding of that period in time. I do a lot of that, and uh, I make sure that I look at several translations all the time. So I always, when I'm preaching or teaching, I'm looking at four, five, six different translations. Yeah, I, I really enjoy good commentaries that get you into the context of the scriptures themselves, but they're not always the most accessible things to read. Mm-hmm. There will be times I read a commentary and think, oh, I just read that page, and I think I understood less than 1% of what was there. And so you, not all commentaries are 
made the same. And some commentaries, by contrast, are way too simplistic in my mind. They don't actually helpfully get you into the scriptures. So there is one series that I feel like sort of straddles the fence of both of those worlds, and it's called the New International Commentary Series. They have Old Testament books and they have New Testament books, but it's New International Commentary Series. I remember we had one class on 1 Corinthians, and that commentary was about 1,200 pages or so, and that was the only textbook that we used in the class. But I'll tell you what, after 14 weeks, I felt like I had lived in first century Corinth for those 14 weeks and had a very good understanding of why Paul was writing what he was writing. So for those people that really want to take a whack at something, again, it might tend towards a little bit more of the complexity, but it's probably the best written commentary series. I know it's the new international commentary series. And I'll again sing the praises of the ESV Study Bible. Mm -hmm. If you want one Bible in your house that has tremendous notes at the bottom of the page explaining the hard stuff, it's called the ESV Study Bible. And then on a little bit different track, if if you're going to lead a Bible study, there's a a Bible called the Serendipity Bible. Mm -hmm. And it's so good, it'll give you enough material for your whole life. (laughs) <laughs> it'll have the, the text of like Luke chapter two, and then right next to it, in, in the column to the left, it'll have questions for your small group from Luke chapter two. You don't have to work. You just okay. Well, let's mm-hmm. see, read the questions for Luke five through nineteen. You know, and it's just so easy. It's well done. It's called the Serendipity Bible. If you're leading a small group. You know, when Jen and I were dating, and this applies directly to this, so give me a moment. <laughs> when we were dating, the first time she ever said, I love you, Tom, I stopped everything. I just stopped. And I said, would you say that again? And she said it again, and I go, how about one more time? <laughs> and I think with the scriptures, we're too big a hurry to get through them. I have learned I will spend sometimes uh, two weeks on one part of a scripture passage and just keep reading it over and keep looking into it and keep letting it melt inside of me and then saying, how do I do this, Lord? How do I put to work your word? And I found that people that do that seem to grow in their discipleship much faster than those who are just reading through it a chapter a day and trying to get to the end in the year. Take your time, mm-hmm. you know, hear it over and over. Let the Lord speak to you. What about tools like the, the manums, manners and customs of the Bible? Do you have copies of oh, yeah. that book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, know, you have to find out what the man, manners and customs were of the time. Well, you absolutely do, because these are not 21st century people. They're living an entirely different life. I, I can't imagine a situation where I would travel to a foreign country, even in the 21st century, and expect them at all to think or act or be like the American psyche might be. It's, it's always, it was fascinating to me, even when we lived in, in Great Britain for an extended period of time. I thought, hey, they're speaking English. It's the same country. I had absolutely <laughs> no idea how much we would stick out like a sore thumb as Americans in all of the little subtleties and nuances of how we sort of natively carry ourselves often as Americans. I stuck out like a sore thumb all the time. It got to the point where I hardly even liked to say something out loud because it would reveal my Americanized life. And so... You have to. We had to learn the British context, and that's almost a one-to-one relationship. And they, we are so far removed from the world of Scripture, and so so often the passages that are puzzling to us are simply because it's not our worldview. And so those kinds of tools, I think, are terribly helpful. I like that, and that's still true in the world today. When I went to Bangladesh, the missionaries gave me a whole list of things that I should not do. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't know you weren't supposed to wave at somebody <laughs> because in that culture it has a whole different meaning. It has nothing to do with saying hi. And they said, never offer anybody your left hand. And I said, why is that? Well, when you go to the potty, that's the hand you use when you get done. Mm -hmm. You just never do that Mm. in that culture. So it's always right-handed, and you eat with your right hand, and you do everything with your right hand. I had no idea. Now, if I'd read that in Scripture, you know, be right-handed. 
you know, and, and fulfill the will of the Lord. I wouldn't have a clue what that meant, and I'd read something into it that wasn't there. That's, That's why manners and customs are good. I'm getting a lot of mean texts right now from left-handed people. <laughs> yeah, way to abuse the scripture. Says, oh, that wasn't close. The last one says, how dare you? They're probably really creative. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's all right. Uh, all right. Bill, one, one other uh, resource <laughs> to throw in there. I, I affirm everything that's been shared so far, but um, I, I've really been impressed recently with the Bible Project, the Bible Project. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. me too. Um, and uh, they, they, have a, they have a newer section on there that, that's called like the study notes, where you can actually like glean from all the study that the, the authors of all the content have gone through. So you're not just getting the product and consuming the product, but you, they actually bring you along in the process of it. And so, you know, when they're doing a word study, they, they're literally going through every single occurrence in Scripture of that particular word. And so it really teaches you along the way how to do what they do, not just necessarily enjoy and learn from what they do. And that is the BibleProject.com. It's an amazing resource. It genuinely it, is. Yeah, yeah. genuinely I, is. I got her off there. Great, yeah. great videos, too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And Tim Mackey is brilliant, I think. Agreed. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and he's in the Madison area. I think he's moved mm-hmm. to, since moved to Tennessee or something, but I've tried to get him on the show. But He's been ghosting you? A little bit. Yeah. How dare he? I, I, Give me his phone number. That's stunning. <laughs> I mean, seriously, who yeah. says no to, to this show, right? <laughs> I wouldn't. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, what do you say to someone who has lost a child mm. to um, either a disease or an accident, and they... All they want to do is scream at God. Scream with them? In the beginning. Yeah. You know, in the yeah. beginning, you're there, and you just, you're there just to, to empathize with them, to let mm. the pain be there. Sooner or later, though, and here's my experience with people like this, sooner or later, they start asking what I would call non-emotional questions. You know, I grew up with a loving Jesus. Why would a loving Jesus allow this to happen? When it's finally said that way, then we can start looking at Scripture and talking about it. Bottom line is, we live in a world of free will, and horrible things happen, and even to Christians, and we, I go back to what Peter said, we have not done a good job in the church at teaching people in the Western culture that even Christians are going to suffer. Christians are going to lose their children. Christians are going to have horrible things happen to them. But in the midst of that, we still have joy, because the joy is knowing Jesus has the final word and that we're going to eternity. Yeah, I think that's a good word, Parrish. And, and Justin, I know in, in our friendship over these past few years, you, you've been helpful in teaching me the language of lament. I think it's just an un- underutilized resource where to, to lament is just to let it all out without any condition, without any um, assuming God is going to do something different, that, that God gives us the freedom to to lament. And, and I just think that is something that in a broken world that is a journey of scars, it just is going to be a journey of scars. And, and um, we, we will not have those tears wiped away until we are safely home. That, that's why we await for the now and coming king. And, and we can't have our tears wiped away on the side of it. But there is a king who will walk through those tears with us as we go home. And in the midst of that, um, to lament is what we do. But to lament together, to your point, Parrish, um, when those tragic things happen... We need each other, and we need to lament each other and to be with each other in those places of sorrow uh, and not just wish or hope them away. Agreed. Such wisdom. Tom Brock, do you have anything to add? Well, I'm just thinking about when my nine-month-old niece died. Um, The pastor was a great pastor of my sister, said to her, well, just know that some well-meaning people are going to say some really dumb stuff to Mm -hmm. you, like... God needed another angel in heaven. That's why he took your job. This kind of, and you know, when we just need to give grace to people too. Everybody's nervous when a child dies. 
And people are going to say stupid stuff. Forgive them. But if you're the person giving the comfort, just just be very careful what you say. Yeah. 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 I, I think the only thing I could add to that, I mean, you know, the question, what what do you say? And I would just, you know, be very cautious about saying anything. I think don't underestimate the power of presence. Mm-hmm. And right. um, and just and just simply show up. I mean, I I heard one one person say the best thing you can do when someone is grieving is to show up and shut up. Mm. Yes. And and uh, and let you know it, in time. Not that you and, and you can be praying. You don't have to pray oh, yeah. for them right there out loud, but you can pr- be praying for them and just and trusting that there is a there is a comfort that comes from someone who is willing to be present and sit with you in the midst of your grief mm-hmm. and to journey with you. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, once again, thank you so much for your active participation in Guy Talk. We love it. Thank That's you, really Thanks. Have yeah. a great a, rest of the pleasure. day. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Marcus Bachman will be here. We're going to talk about family uh, traditions at Christmas time and how to navigate difficult relationships. He is a relationship counselor, as you know, and I've got a special guest that's going to be joining me in the hour. You'll have to wait four minutes to find out who it is. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.